Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Unger-Sargon. And this is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. Today, we are going to discuss uh, the role of women in religion, traditional family structures, gender roles, all the stuff that you always wanted to hear about. So Batya, who are we going to hear from? We could not be more thrilled with today's guests. We're so excited to have Bethany Mandel on. She's an editor at ricochet.com and a contributor to the Washington Examiner blog and magazine. She's also a homeschooler and the mother of five children as of two weeks ago. So she will probably be having that newborn close at hand. We are also so excited to have Dr. Beth Allison Barr, who's a professor of history and associate dean of graduate studies at Baylor University. She's also the author of the celebrated but highly controversial book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Cannot wait for this one, Josh. It's going to be a great one, and we're going to get to it right on the other side of the break. But before we let you go, we want to give a quick word to our sponsor, Herzog Wine Cellars. You go to HerzogWine.com to check them out. Quick break here, and on the other side, Bethany Mandel and Beth Allison. Stay with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? (laughs) Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to another episode of Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. This week, we are talking about the role of women in religion and traditional family structures. Should it change? Should it not change? So, uh, Badia, why don't you kind of uh, launch us right in? Yeah. So, first of all, Bethany and Beth, thank you both so much for being with us. We're so excited for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. So we're here to discuss what is the role of women in religion? Does it need to change? How should we be thinking about the traditional family, about power, about gender in 2021? So Beth, let's start with you. You've recently written a book that really touches on this exact topic. Yes, so I do. I've re- recently written The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which has caused quite a bit of stir <laughs> among evangelical Christian circles. And part of which is because I have hit this topic of what should women do and what are women supposed to do? And we know that evangelicals in the U.S. are one of the religious groups that are the least comfortable with women working outside the home. And so this and we know that women in these groups have been leaving the workforce, um, not in huge numbers, but it certainly has been a decline since the early 2000s. And this seems to be connected to some of the theological teachings that evangelical Christians have imbibed. So I think this this is a really relevant conversation and really important to women. Um, and so especially since now that half the workforce in the U.S. are working women between the age of 25 and 54. So, Bethany, you've also spent a lot of time in a religious community, in the Orthodox Jewish community. Tell us how you view this topic of women and power and religion. Um, where do you come at this from? I don't have any expertise in the evangelical community, but it's actually interesting in the Jewish world, kind of completely reversed in the Orthodox Jewish world, the the women are pretty much universally expected to work. And sometimes in order to sort of financially support the household because their husbands are doing more important things like learning Torah, um, which I, I sort of 
like sort of believe, but sort of don't. Um, but it leads to a lot of um, burnout among mothers mm-hmm. and women when you're sort of expected to do it all, have four, five, six, seven, eight kids and work full time. Um, I'm not sure that there's an easy answer um, for any of this. Uh, I, I think that probably women in the evangelical community who are boxed out of the workforce are probably miserable. And I think that, and I know that the women who are pushed into the workforce in the Orthodox Jewish community are also pretty miserable. Um, I'm not sure if there's a if there's an, an a solution which doesn't make women miserable, but I am open to hearing it. Oh gosh! All right, so well, let me just push let zero in a little bit before Josh jumps in with the next question. So Beth, you do argue though that the role women are playing in the evangelical community right now has to change. Is that accurate? Yes. I think that women should be allowed to make choices about what they want to do. And I think that's one of the things. And it's interesting hearing Bethany talk about that from the Orthodox Jewish perspective, because it sounds similar to the same problem that evangelical women are facing. And that's that they have a, they have a set of expectations about what they are supposed to do. And women who go outside those expectations or want to do something else Um, that it's very challenging for them. And so evangelical women, it may be having more challenges in going to work, whereas um, Orthodox Jewish women, it may be having challenges not wanting to work. Um, But still, the burden is on women. So do you think that the, who who is pushing women out of the work? Do you think that the husbands are just point blank saying, Mm -hmm. I want you to be working as a homemaker at home? Or do you think that it's it's sort of the culture of the evangelical community that sort of frowns upon it, or is it a combination of them? It's a combination. I don't know if y'all have been paying attention to Christianity Today's um, Mars Hill podcast, but it just released an episode on a series of Mark Driscoll sermons, which were targeting women and telling their husbands that if they let their women, uh, if they let their wives work, that they were a failure in the home. So, so it's a combination of women internalizing a certain message that they're getting from husbands and from the church. And Bethany, what is your position? Do you feel that, you know, the role of women in the religious community writ large needs to change radically? I mean, I think that it really should depend upon the women and and what the dynamic is in their marriage. Um, I, I don't think I don't think that there's a solution that can really happen on a societal basis and on a cultural basis without people sort of within their own personal lives making personal choices. I, I am a little reticent to sort of have these blanket conversations about women in in the workforce in in any realm, but I, I think that there's a lot of personal choice in here that sort of not discussed and not acknowledged and not um, and not honored. And so it, it makes me wonder sort of how much um, how much conversation happens within a marriage about what they'll do financially and what they'll do right. work wise. Um, I, I mean, I only know my own marriage and and my husband's grandmother, you know, famously used to say, you never know what happens behind closed doors. Um, but we I mean, we've had a number of conversations about my work situation within my marriage. And, um, and I kind of wonder, like, do outsiders think that my husband is making me stay home and, you know, have all of these babies and work from home and, you know, work myself to the bone? Um, 
in every sort of part of our bot our, our lives, you know, domestically and and work wise. Um, so I'm sort of reticent to make these value judgments about other people's decisions because the only people who know the decision making in our household is me and my husband. And so Bonnie and I did a podcast a few weeks ago about me too in the workplace. And I was kind of also mm-hmm. the, the token man on that podcast. And I, I kind of assumed that mantle with pride. Uh, so I, I <laughs> to kind of return to form here and um, assume like the, the masculine mantle, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. So from my perspective, um, I, if, if I can just kind of open up a little bit, I have always thought that women have a special connection to the child that the man simply does not have and for simple biological reasons will never be able to attain. Um, the woman obviously has the child grow and mature uh, in, in, into a nearly fully formed human being uh, in, in, in the womb, has the experience of childbirth that a man will never experience. And I think for similar reasons, um, to kind of borrow from, you know, some of our, our, our Catholic friends, we're kind of like traditional, like kind of natural law philosophers have often thought that like the woman does have for natural reasons, for lack of a better term, like a, like a truly kind of God-given role in raising the child that a man simply will never be able to attain. So you're both, you know, you're, you're, you're both religious. I would be curious for your, for your thoughts on how to respond to that. And let's, uh, let's start with you, Beth. <laughs> Yes. So what you just described to me, I remember telling my dissertation advisor many years ago, and she looked at me and said, Beth, that is essentialism. And that is, it is indeed an idea that some people have, but it is not an idea that is historically supported. And so what we know is that cultures throughout time that women have played, um, well, they have, of course, always been the child bearers, and there has always been that, that connection. But we also know that at varying times, you know, what women did in the household and the training of the child um, hasn't always been the same. And in many households, you know, it was often divided by sex where the women were the primary caregivers for the, the, for the, um, for the daughters and the sons went at early ages to be cared for by the men and by the husbands, by the, by the you know, male people in the community. And so I think I think we do have to put this into historical context. Um, clearly, there is some you know biology with what women women do, but at the same time, I think there also are some unique biological connections that men have, you know, to their children um, that sometimes we ignore by focusing so much on women's roles with their children. And so I think by focusing too much on women's roles with their children, we really are in the danger of downplaying. Um, the husband's role or the father's role with their children. So I would be careful with that, although I do understand your point, but I still, as a historian, would be careful with it. Well, Bethany, I, I want your take on this, but let me just follow up with you, Beth, real quick then. So uh, I fully intuit and understand, of course, that like a man has a, has a special obligation. I mean, look, I personally have very, very fond memories of going to the sports park with my father, like learning how to like throw, <laughs> throw, throw a football, yeah. have a baseball catch. I mean, Teach, learning how to like swing a golf club like that the, the, those sort of memories are like deeply ingrained to me but you imagine biological is, is, is there any kind of special biological function that men serve vis-a-vis child rearing you think well you know i mean i can some of this obviously i'm a medieval historian so i'm not sure how much i want to get into the biology of our brains etc there has been a lot of work done on the significance of a woman and in fact i joke with my children you know, when they're upset or something and I go to hug them and they're like, no, don't hug me. And my thought, I'm like, you know, it, science says that a mother's touch helps calm down children. And so I use that, you know, with them and so forth. So I do think there are some things like that as well. But I also think there are some things like that with men. 
Um, and so, as I said, I think we have to be careful about putting too much um, importance on one child caregiver over the other. And I also think in our society today, um, there are a lot of men who are for the sake of the family and for the sake of the gifts of their wife are starting to be the caregivers at home. And I don't want to get it. I don't want us to think that they're able to less care for their children or provide the same sort of emotional support and love that mothers are. So I, as I said, I would be cautious about that. Um, I think there is something to say about being a mother, but I think there's also something to say about being a father. So. And, and Bethany, I saw you kind of nodding along when I was talking about the special, um, you know, biological role that a woman has that like, a man will never be able to attain. But um, how, how far do you take that argument? Are you kind of sympathetic to this kind of like natural argument that women have like a special, um, a, a kind of God-given blessed role in raising the child that a man will simply never have? So I, I agree with you on the biology, uh, but I disagree that there's this sort of biblical mm-hmm. undertone to it. I, I always tell new parent friends at the end of the day, you have to remember that we're mammals. And I think that it's important to remember (laughs) that from an evolutionary perspective. And so that's sort of how I've tried to parent babies because it is so, um, it's so raw and it's so, uh, I'm trying to look for the right word, instinctual. Um, Babies function on instinct because they're really blobs until at least two or three months old. And so my, my husband keeps on telling me that our, our two week old, like he loves you so much. No, he doesn't. I smell like his food source. Right. And he hears my heartbeat and he hears my voice and he is drawn to me sort of to an unnecessary, in my opinion, like, do I need to hold him every second of the day? Does he need to touch me all night long? I feel like no. I I just want our listeners to know that Bethany is actually currently holding her yeah, and he and he's, he's using so beautiful. my boob as a pillow, <laughs> and I had to cover up because Josh is on this podcast. But I mean, but this is how this is how it works. This yeah. is the only way I'm able to work is with him, not just nursing because he's not nursing right now, but he has to be touching his food source at all times because he's a mammal and I'm a mammal, and so I very deeply agree with you that there is a instinctual connection that women have with their babies in the beginning and for a long time. I mean, I have a four-year-old who mostly hates me, except (laughs) when he's vomiting. That's the one moment he wants me. And that's because I am a comforting source and yada, yada. Um, and, And I agree with Beth that men have a role and my husband is the comforter in our family. I'm not the one who is really sympathetic um, but, but women do have a different role, especially in the first couple of years. Um, and I think that that's evolutionary and that's bio- biological, um, because that's the only way the human race survived for as long as it did. There's a really interesting book that I reviewed, uh, a couple of years ago for the Washington Examiner called Act Natural. I just looked it up while, while you were talking, Beth, because it sort of made me sort of think back to this book because it's all about sort of the historical view of parenting Mm, and it basically is a miracle that the human race has survived. (laughs) There is no reason why we should have the things that we used to do with children, the number one cause of death for babies in England for centuries was uh, being burned alive in their cradle. 
well, yeah, Barbara Hannah Walt has done a lot of work on the yeah. coroner's reports in medieval England. Wow. So, you know, it's I mean, crazy. It's, it's I and that is one of the dangers of having have having women who had these high, um, you know, in some ways dangerous jobs in caring for the home and some of the domestic jobs that they did and having the children with them all the time. I mean, there was there was an element of danger in that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I do also with with Bethany with thinking about my children. Um, I breastfed both my children too, and it's sort of funny because until the moment I, uh, throughout the entire time I breastfed them, till they're about a year and a half, um, when they would wake up at night, I would hear them immediately and get up. But the minute I stopped, minute yes. I weaned them, I stopped hearing them. And my yep. husband wow. then was the person who got up in the middle of the night with them from that point forward. One so, of my favorite things, I love sort of this biological mystery of of childbirth and parenting. I, I find it super fascinating. It's one of the things that I love talking about. Um, I often, again, when I'm breastfeeding my kids, I'll wake up and I will feel my milk let down. And I'm like, why am I awake right now? What, what, why? And then I hear my baby wake up and my body has instinctually woken me up and let down milk before my child woke up often in another room and it's because you have that biological incredible connection to your child that my husband sleeps through it i mean i'm very glad for you beth that your husband then was the one that woke up that yeah. is not my husband <laughs> we we have the newborn now and i've sort of handed the baton to him with our other four children and our dog and I like have the baby on my boob on one side and I'm like shifting and kicking him. And I'm like, Seth, Seth, one of the children is awake. I don't know which one. Go go investigate. And he needs that firm kick in the butt, literally, to wake up because he doesn't hear it. No, I slept. I slept from that time forward. God bless uh, you. My husband wakes up at night. However, I do think this brings up, you know, one of the challenges that women have faced is the ability for the workplace to be a friendly environment to them with their children. So that may be something you're getting to, to talk, wanting us to talk about, so I'll let you. Let's let's take it into a quick break here. Um, we're clearly off to a very lively and engaging start, but we definitely don't want Seth to try to cancel our podcast or anything like that. So let's, uh, before, before, we, before we get to that <laughs> Sorry, point, <honey. laughs> um, let's take it to a quick break. We're, you're listening to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. We'll be right back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. Our guests are Beth Allison Barr and Bethany Mandel, and we're talking about women and religion and the traditional family. And all right, we got to we gotta find some area of disagreement between you guys. After all, this <laughs> podcast is called The Debate, and I know that you guys do disagree about um, important issues on this topic. So Beth, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like you've sort of taken a position against normative gender roles. And my question is, is there no way for someone to believe that men and women have different but equal roles 
Um, you know, it seems to me like there's a kind of polarity in your view where there's sort of domesticity on the one side and power on the other side. And a woman sort of relegated to the domestic sphere is by definition less powerful. Is Am I understanding you accurately? And if so, can you talk to us about this? Um, yes, sort of. So part of this, uh, I think what has happened with the with what we consider to be the normative family, the traditional family, um, is that this is a construct that we can see the creation of it in history. And what we talk about traditional gender roles today for, you know, for the American family, these are based in a 19th century construction of gender, which did polarize the domestic space from the public space. There are places throughout history where we see this repeat, um, you know, where there are similarities between this, but at the same time, there are, you know, as many historical continuities are, there's also points of, of historical difference. And so I, I would push against sort of the normative family mm -hmm. values mm -hmm. because I think this is something that uh -huh. is, um, it's historically constructed. So I would say that I do push against the fact that there are certain roles that women are supposed to do in society and there are certain roles that men are supposed to do in society and that there are not only um, legal and economic and social reasons for that, but there are also religious reasons for that. And I would argue that those reasons are culturally constructed and especially from the Christian framework are not based um, in biblical teachings, mm -hmm. that it's something we've added to the text. So mm -hmm. yes. So, okay, great. So, Bethany, this is something I think you would disagree with. You know, you were raised by a single mother and you've also written, you know, very movingly about your experience as the victim of sexual abuse by the rabbi who converted you. You know, you have every reason to be suspicious about men in power. And at the same time, you are a woman who I think of you very much as identified with the kind of domestic sphere. You have now these five beautiful children. You're a homeschooler. Um, you're a wife. You're a mother. And at the same time, you're one of the most powerful women that I know. So do, I think you would resist maybe that polarity, no? Yeah, I would. So I, I think that, again, I think that it has to come down to personal choice. And in our sort of circumstance, me and my husband, the traditional gender roles and, and conforming to them largely made sense. And I think that there's a reason why socially and historically, if not as far back as, as Beth, I think Beth would disagree about how far back it goes. But I think that our sort of normative gender roles are there for a reason. Um, and I personally like leaning upon them. Um, I like that I'm not the breadwinner. I would find that stressful. Uh, I like being home with our children. I like that, um, that this is sort of my area of expertise. Um, and I, I find it helpful within our family dynamic to have a parent who is the primary caregiver and to have a point person on the domestic side and on the child care side. And, um, and my husband, by and large, I, I, I can think of no exception in which he has ever stepped into that um, into that sphere for me and stepped on my toes. He sort of trusts my judgment um, with every part of, of our, how, how we run our household, um, doctor's appointments, uh, our educational choices for our children, um, paying the bills, all of those things are sort of on me. And, and I find that to be in a strange way, kind of liberating because I've sort of watched my friends who try to have it all, who try to work full time, 
there's the biggest source of their disagreement with their husbands when they have children is um, is the mental load. And they resent that they are expected to work full time and also carry a significant portion, if not the vast majority of their household's mental load. And, and I think that in a strange way, the fact that we sort of set out on our parenting journey, having me bear that completely uh, has been somewhat freeing because I don't carry that resentment that I'm carrying it. But we also shaped our lives in a way that I'm also not expected to bear the mental load of a full-time job. And so my husband respects the fact that running our household and running everything related to our children is my full-time job. And unfortunately, I don't receive a salary for it. But um, but it is a job. It is a job and it has to be recognized and respected as such. But I, I think that leaning on these traditional gender roles with the understanding that my husband respects me in this sphere. And I think that that's a massive component of why it works. I think that that is um, that has been sort of a, a good part of of our, our parenting and, and honestly, our marriage journey as well. So what about the non-traditional gender roles? I mean, um, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a conservative. I definitely, like, uh, believe in traditional gender roles, but to play, like, devil's advocate here a little bit. Um, you know, my friend and former boss, speaking of religious Jews, uh, Ben Shapiro, you know, he, I think, has spoken publicly, if I'm not mistaken, by the fact that uh, his father was uh, not a true stay-at-home father, but definitely kind of had the lead role in the home yeah. growing up. Um, you know, they certainly turned out kind of, you know, froom religious uh, and, and all yeah. that. So, yeah. Ben also bears, the, I mean, I, I'm friends he with does, Ben as well. Absolutely. Ben yes. bears the majority of their household's mental load. Um, I Because famously his wife is a doctor. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that the important thing is that Ben's parents and Ben and his wife have a prior understanding. And I think that that, that is such right. a huge component of what makes any anything work is that communication within a marriage that they acknowledged that this is what needs to happen. And, and each party sort of said, this is what needs, this is what I want and this is what I need. And also you sort of have to have a real honest conversation about what it takes to run a household with children in it. There has to be a parent who has in their brain when the last time all of the children have had a well visit. I I don't know a parent. I don't know a couple. Beth, maybe you're that couple where <laughs> one of both parents remember that little Johnny had his last well visit and shots 14 months ago and is due for another visit to the pediatrician. That's not the case in, in my household. And I know I know other households where it's the husband who who has that mental load. But nine times out of 10, it's the mother. And in our, in our marriage, and I know in Ben's marriage, there is a parent who is a point person on that, on that kind of mental load. So this is fascinating. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, I do want to make sure though, that, uh, that I don't come across as being against um, staying home with your children, because I'm not at all. My whole, my whole thing is I think women should do what they want to do, what, yes. what works for their families. And I think that one of the reasons why most of the mental load has fallen on women, 
and why most of the burden has fallen on women, like women working. I mean, we all know about the um, about the second shift. I mean, there's been a lot of research done on that, that women work full time yep. and then they go home and do the second shift. Um, and so I think what's part of that, though, is because we have created a society that does not make it that makes it harder for women to work. And so I think that one of, you know, it's easier to have a point person to have somebody stay at home um, because we have created a society that does not make it easy to have two working parents who are both fully working. I mean, we do not structure school schedules that really allows for both parents to have a job that they need to be in the office from eight to five because you can't drop your kids off and go and pick them up. I mean, that's not that's not school hours. Um, we don't have. We don't have childcare. I mean, 70% of U.S. households spend at least 10%, if not much more, on childcare. And so for many families, it's they can't. I mean, it just simply financially is too hard to put, especially if they have multiple children, to put them into childcare. It's difficult. I would disagree with you on... So I agree with you that societally we're not in a place where working mothers are supported, but I would disagree with you on the solution. I Research seems to indicate, and, and I think that there are limitations to any kind of social science research. Mm-hmm. Research seems to indicate that women prefer a situation where they work part-time and they have childcare, but that they, they are the ones who are spending those after-school hours with their kids and that they don't desire more childcare they desire more time with their children and more work flexibility. Okay, but Bethany, so, can I just push back a little bit? Like, so, yeah. so I think the I think you both agree that you want women to have the maximum amount of choice. That seems to be an error. Yes. I think probably all of us can agree on that. But Bethany, it seems to me that the argument that Beth is making writ large is that religion, fundamentalist forms of religion, you know, yeah. orthodox forms of religion makes that less likely like that that yes. more women will will be less likely to be able to take advantage of their preference if they are religious than if they are not do you agree with that i do but then i also think that there's a, an inverse to that mm. non-religious women are universally expected to want to work full time out of out of the home and there is that societal expectation whereas religious women are expected to stay home full-time non-religious women are expected to want to put their children in childcare when they're six weeks old and or eight weeks old or 12 weeks old whatever and have affordable childcare so that they can work out of the home from eight to five and also go out on girls nights and all of these things and in all of these conversations about family structure i think that there's not enough conversation about what is best for children and this sort of harkens back to what Josh was saying about this innate connection that mothers and children have. And I think that they do have that innate connection. And it is not fair to a six-month-old to drop them off at daycare from eight to five and not have a in-person relationship with their parents all of their waking hours five out of seven days a week. I don't think that that um, I don't think that that is fair to children and and that um, that's not a conversation that we kind of are allowed to have anymore as a society because it's viewed as mommy shaming and it's viewed as guilt and but it's the biological reality that children crave connection with a parent but really with their mother and um, and is that fair? No. 
Is life fair? Also, no. So I absolutely love this. Um, I could not agree more with everything you just said, <laughs> Bethany. Um, my question, my, my follow-up question, and then Beth would love your thoughts on this too, is... Yeah, I'm going to push back. Okay, okay well, you know what, Beth, I'll, I'll let you push back and then I'll, kind of, then I'll hop in. Yeah, so uh, this is great. You know, I love, I love hearing this. And the things that Bethany just reiterated are things that I've heard all my life as an evangelical woman. I mean, it's very, very similar. These are these types of things. Um, I also do think that one of the problems with what we do with childcare is that we have created a childcare system that does not fit with our working needs. Like for example, I'm a college professor. Um, I, I never had to put my children in any sort of daycare like that. I was lucky enough to have family around and a flexible work schedule. I also taught when I nursed my children, um, I wore them and I taught classes with my children with me. I breastfed them um, in my office, in my car, um, all sorts of things. And so, you know, I, and I never had at the, the university where I work, I was allowed to do that. And it seems to me that what we need is we need workplaces that allow women yes. to be able to do that if they want to do that. Um, you know, we need to have childcare. In fact, one of the things I advocate for at the university level is we need to have childcare on campus so yes. that parents can take and go. And so I don't think this is a work question. I think this is the way we built our society question. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do think, though, I know I've done, you know, my husband and I were in youth ministry for a very long time. And I have worked with a, a lot of children. And while I do think that it is that w- that children do need to have those you know, relationships and good relationships with their parents, I also think we have to bring the race element into this. And these conversations that we are having are often conversations that are only available to wealthier, more elite, especially white women in the U.S., I mean, there are a lot of working mothers. I mean, if we think about um, Black women are more likely to be working mothers than white women are. Um, And so they are, they don't, many, and historically, because Black women, uh, this is changing significantly, which I'm really glad about, but historically, they did not have the types of jobs that allowed them to have that type of flexibility. So I do, I think we've got to bring race into it. I would not argue that women, um, that women's children are less well off in these types of structures, especially when their parent is working to provide for their child to be able to, to have food on the table. I mean, that is just as important a caregiving um, as, as being with them. And so I, I just want to put that element in. Also, as a medieval historian, you know, women did not care for their children the way that we care for them today. And it does not mean that they didn't love them. They love them deeply. It's just that their society was built differently and the children were not the full, the sole focus of their parents. I mean, this is a very modern sort of concept that all of our attention is put on our children. And I worry about that. I've watched a lot of teenagers. I worry about what happens when children grow up in environments where all of their attention of their parents is on them. And so, you know, so I, I mean, I understand Bethany's point and I'm very sympathetic. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My mother-in-law is a stay-at-home mom. I have a lot of stay-at-home mom um, friends and I have considered it in my life because working is hard Um, and staying home is hard too, but it's hard. And I'm privileged because I have a very supportive husband who carries, I do not have a second shift. My husband has always picked up um, the slack in the home and helped me. And so 
I'm very lucky and I know that I'm privileged in that area. There's a lot of people that don't get to have that. So I think that a lot of why sort of more privileged and often, and, and I agree with you that more privileged and more white women have the luxury of having this conversation. I think that we also need to acknowledge why I have this luxury. And it's because I have, I have a husband who's, who's working and the, the rates of single parent households yes. has everything to do with why this is more difficult for so many women. I mean, my mother included, my mother was a single mom who had to work eight 60 hour weeks. And the reason why it was so difficult for her to carry everything was because she, she unfortunately did it alone. Do I think that she was wrong to do it alone? No, she divorced my husband, my father for very good reasons. I'm glad she did. But the reason why it is more difficult is because of the marriage rates. And, and I think that the promotion of marriage and the promotion of two parent households is so much a component of how we can make it easier for women sort of moving forward. Um, that I, I just, I think that that needs to be part of the conversation as well. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be right back on the other side. I actually want to pick up right where Bethany left off, though, because uh, marriage rates and marriageability is exactly where my line of questioning was heading anyway. So uh, you're listening to uh, The Debate. This is a Newsweek podcast. We'll be right back with Bethany Mandel and Beth Allison. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. Today we are discussing the role of women in religion and religious households and traditional family structures and uh, related topics. So... I have a question, and I want to preface this by saying um, this is not necessarily like a hardline position. I'm kind of just thinking out loud along these lines. So one of the things that is afflicting America in the year 2021, um, and Bethany was talking about this a little bit when we kind of talk about marriage at the end of the, of the last segment, are declining marriage rates and declining marriageability. There's obviously kind of plummeting birth rates as well, which is part and parcel of kind of, from, from my understanding, kind of this, this marriage crisis. And... I wonder whether part of this um, has to do with the fact that um, more more women go to college these days than men. Um, more women earn higher degrees than men. Um, and I wonder, you know, I'm thinking of my, my friend Helen Andrews who wrote an essay for American Compass back in February, speculating whether there was a role for the state in, in kind of trying to alleviate this, this gap that um, is resulting, of course, in kind of the a, a declining marriage rates and fertility crises and all of that. And I don't know exactly what that looks like, to be honest with you. Maybe there should be like hard caps on men majoring in non-lucrative, like patently silly subjects, right? Like, uh, Isn't uh, Helen conservative? Absolutely. And she wants the state well, I, to, to be clear, I don't remember necessarily what the conclusion of Helen's essay was. She was just kind of outlining the problem that, from her perspective, uh, it's, it's possible that, like, t- it's, it's possible the fact that the fact that more women are getting advanced degrees than men might actually be a bad thing because, like you said, Bethany, look, I mean, you know, I, as you know, as a man who's gone on many dates, a lot of women want their husband to be the breadwinner. Okay, like that's that's like a pretty standard thing. It's not particularly rare. 
So it's, it's like a logical consequence of that. If you have more women that are getting more advanced degrees, there's going to, there's going to be kind of a mismatch in, in the dating market at kind of like a structural level. Um, I don't have any kind of grand ideas for, so, for what, if anything, to do about that. But I can see Beth is kind of dying to kind of. I was like, I am dying over Matt. here. I am dying. So this is one of the things that I love and that I think people miss because we don't know our history. And one of the things in the late medieval period, there is something called the Northwestern marriage pattern. And what we actually find is that there are a whole ton of single women running around who are choosing not to get married. And this has nothing to do with any, this has nothing to do with higher education. This has nothing to do with any of the things that you just said. And so I think, you know, we have to think that this, this is not something Wait, that, wait, wait, Beth, 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 why yes. was it? Tell us why it was. <laughs> well, part of it was is because of the changing, you know, this is in the wake of the, of the Black Death. Uh-huh. And there is um, there is more ability for women to move around and there's more resources, frankly. And so women actually are able to move into the workforce in, in, in towns and cities in ways that they weren't able to do before. And so a lot of it is the economic mobility. Um, and so we see women delaying marriage, not getting married until wow. much later, and some women staying single for, you know, for throughout their life. Wow. And there's some really good research done on single women in history. And this is this is not so it's not a problem. It's not a it's not a product when people say that this is a product of second wave feminism or even the suffrage movement. And I'm like, well, let's put this into historical context. Mm-hmm. You know, if these things weren't going on in the past, I think what we see when there is economic, when there is ability for women um, to move into the workforce, many women want to move into the workforce. And this is something, and this is not just something that happens in American culture. This is something that we see have happened throughout time. And so I think I want to be really cautious when we say, well, women prefer to have their husbands be breadwinners. Maybe, maybe some women do. Um, A lot of women, a lot of this is conditioning of women. A lot of the ways, you know, these are the things we hear. We hear that we should be, that our husbands should be the breadwinners. I mean, this is what James Dobson spent his entire life working on with focus on the family was telling husbands that they need to be the breadwinners winners, and women need to stay home. And women internalize these messages. Um, but often what we see is when women are given the chance to do more or to do something else, they often choose it. And I think we need to pay attention. I mean, let's just let women do what they want to do. I mean, that's really my whole thing here. Why are we trying to put limits on what women um, I, I love Bethany's emphasis on personal choice. Why don't we just let women, if they want to go to college, why don't we let them go to college? <laughs> if they want to work outside the home, let them do that. If they want to marry a breadwinner and stay home, let them do that. Um, let's make it where women can have these choices and that society, our culture is built to support women in whatever choice. Okay, so like, do you th- so. do you think that the fact that surveys consistently show, though, that women complain about the lack of marriageable men, uh, what should we do about that, if anything? Is, is, I mean, look, look, as a man, like, I'll take like partial responsibility for that. My people are not always covering themselves in, in, in glory here. Um, and like, so, <laughs> go ahead, Bethany. I want to jump in on that one. So <laughs> I think that the lack of marriageable men isn't necessarily the fault of women going to college. I think that women, I mean, I'm sort of speaking for myself also, like why did women go to college? Because they have to support themselves because they're not meeting men who are doing it. There are fewer and fewer men 
it, going to college or going into the trades, becoming plumbers, whatever, that are willing to stand up and assume their role as a breadwinner. This this paradigm only works when everyone buys in. I have a lot of friends who would love to live a more traditional life, who want to have a million babies, who want to stay home with their kids. And they went through college looking for that man and they sort of majored in things that they were interested in but wouldn't necessarily make them any money. And then like the men never really showed up and the men that they were meeting and dating were not of the same mindset. And so they went into the workforce because at the end of the day, mama's got to pay rent. Like they, they've, they have to live their lives, not waiting for this man who's going to show up and, you know, be their, their breadwinner. But I think that there, the, the lack of men who are willing to sort of be part of this couple is a lot of this as well. I, I, I really feel for a lot of my single girlfriends. I, I love setting people up. And there's a reason why I have a million women who I would love to set up, roughly two men. Remind me to, on a personal note to follow up with you after this podcast is over. But um, I just want I, I, I just are you single now? Uh, we'll talk about that when the camera goes off. But um, okay. I I um I do want to just quickly make sure the listeners of this podcast fully understand here. I am not saying that um, uh, this differential in people in college is kind of the leading or perhaps even a reason for um, women persistently complaining about lack of marriageable men in surveys. I think my people bear a lot of the blame for this. In, in, partic- yes. in, in, in particular, I also would blame a lot of kind of like neoliberal excesses like offshoring and the decline of the Rust Belt manufacturing jobs and like a despondency crisis oh. and, all the, and all of this stuff too. But well, th- th- these are conversations for another day. Um, but in the interim, I think Badia has one final question for us. I have one final question. I'm going to ask you, Beth, and then give Bethany a chance to respond. So, Beth, I, I super, super respect what you're doing because you are still a Christian. You are still solidly in this community, and you're trying to change it from within. And I grew yes. up also with a lot of what you describe, like in the Orthodox community, women are not allowed to sing publicly. I had you know men telling me how I had to dress. And so when you talk about those things, I feel so deeply your frustration, and I so admire your desire to change your community from within the same time I feel a little bit like the ghost of the future because the Jewish community has actually done a lot of this we have the reform movement and the conservative movement that really have tried to sort of elevate women into leadership roles and it's the movements are actually from my point of view really limping along I mean you don't there's what I want to say is there's a big sacrifice to specifically I think equalizing gender roles and I'm not quite sure why that is um but you you lose something you lose you know some things that are maybe worth sacrificing like a kind of sexual verve a kind of like intensity of relations between men and women but also an intensity of observance a kind of like a something really important is lost and I am so ambivalent about whether that price is worth paying. I mean, of course, on some level, I think it it really is. It's deeply worth paying. And on the other hand, I feel really deeply the tragedy of paying that price. And when I look at the future of the Jewish community, the future of the liberal movements, it's it's not good. And so I, I kind of want you to solve this problem for me, or at least just speak to it. And then we'll let Bethany, you know, talk about whether she agrees with me and whether she agrees with you. Sure. So I think part of the problem with this is that um, more conservative 
uh, aspects of faith traditions often do not allow to have this equalizing of gender. And so people who no longer are able to stay within these, you know, for lack of a better word, traditional gender values, they often leave to the more what we, you know, liberal elements. And I'm using all of these words with air quotes. Of course. Because, you know, everyone defines them their own way. There's yeah. way more nuance here. Yeah. But nonetheless, and so they leave. And so this is, you know, this, I would sort of hold this up. There's a lot of studies done by um, like very conservative folk in my world, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. One of the things that they always say is they say, if you allow these more liberal, you know, equality for women, then what it leads to is an erosion of the gospel, an erosion of the faith. You have people moving into, moving out of what they would consider to be conservative evangelicalism and moving, and in some ways, leaving Christianity altogether. And I would argue the problem is, is that there is no space for women who do these things within conservative circles. There is no space. We get pushed out. Um, we get pushed out of our churches. That happened to me. Um, you know, even though I am a pretty traditional, you know, from that sense, if you want to think about it, evangelical, I'm very happy Baptist. Theologically, I'm very happy Baptist. <laughs> Um, but there is not as much space for women like me within our evangelical world. So I don't think this is a problem of equal roles. I think this is a problem of conservative circles not allowing women to flourish in their gifts. And so women get pushed out into more liberal spaces. And that also makes the conservative sections be more, you know, they just keep hearing themselves. It becomes an echo chamber because we do not have we really do not have flourishing of ideas, um, of differences, which I think enriches all of us. We get polarized. And heck, that's what hap has happened to our to our world right now. We are so polarized mm -hmm. because we cannot allow differing opinions on some of these non-essential issues within our prescribed spaces. So I flipped the question for you. I don't think it's the equal roles. I think it is what we do with them and that we don't allow um, this sort of equal role to to really flourish within more conservative faith traditions. Bethany, final word. So, I, I mean, I kind of, I, I feel you about, yeah. And I, I think that we're both sort of coming from the Orthodox Jewish perspective. And, and I also really struggle with this. I have two daughters. And do I want my daughters um, covering their hair? They have beautiful red hair. Do I want them covering that? Absolutely not. Do I want them not, not reading from the Torah at their bat mitzvah? No. Um, I, I mean, we just had a son. So traditionally, uh, when a baby is born on a Friday night, if it's a boy, you throw a party. It's called a shalom zacher. When you have a girl, you don't do anything. And, um, and I really resent that. And so we've never done a Friday night party for our three boys because I didn't like that my girls did never had it. Um, it's either both or neither. Um, my sons and daughters will have similarly splurging parties for their bar and bat mitzvah. One won't be more understated than the other. And so I really, I really, really feel you. And as a result of sort of my conflicted feelings about women in the Orthodox community, I've sort of stepped out of it a little bit, but I have had this same sort of dilemma of then Jewish continuity sort of doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's a, it's an all in or an all out situation. And, and I think I, 
Judaism sort of comes at it from a different perspective because we have thousands of years of history and thousands of years of history sort of go along these lines. Right. And so that I, I'm sorry to jump in, but I just I want to sharpen this because I'm sorry I said last word, but I have to yeah, ask you about I this. Want you Beth. To. So so to, I think the reason I'm really struggling with this is because it's not just exactly what Bethany just said, that like the price of Jewish continuity from our specific vantage point, for whatever reason, seems to be this gender issue. But it's it's that it's that I look at the liberal world, okay, and and I really need you to walk me through this, Beth. I look at the liberal world that produced my feminism, my desire to get an aliyah to the Torah, and I think that the that reliance on reason that you see in liberal culture today, that that every generation should come up with their own ideas and their own view. Like I feel like it's led to this place that. I mean, really, the word for it is godless. Like, people are so cruel and so vile, like, to each other. And, and, and it's come from the universities. I see that, like, you know, that, that thing coming straight from this kind of over-reliance on the thing that created my own very strong feminism. Yeah. So, so help me with this, Beth. Help me. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I came from the opposite is that I've, my faith is so strong. Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. fact, my feminism was really born in my faith mm-hmm. because I do not see God as valuing women less than men. And so that actually is what fueled my, my beginning was not outside of my faith. My beginning was in my faith. It's beautiful. And we share that same tradition. I mean, yeah. we share that same tradition of God always seeing women. I mean, that's what Hagar names God, God who sees and I, I think that's where my feminism started was in my faith. And that maybe makes me see this rather different. <laughs> so I'm not worried about becoming godless um, because I, I'm fully rooted in that. Um, I think fa- I loved someone titled me at some point faithfully feminist. And I was like, that's me. Wow. That's me. That's so beautiful. And we I could not have asked for a better note to end on. Beth, Bethany, thank you both so much. This was such a pleasure. Thanks you so much, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. So uh Batya, this was a uh, debate certainly um right up your alley, I think, uh, as a religious woman. What were your thoughts on it? Actually, Josh, I just want to hear your thoughts because I feel like I didn't really hear enough from you. And I am super interested in what you think about what went on and what was said. So why don't you tell us like how you responded to the, you know, the material that came out? Like, what are your where do you stand on this? So, look, Beth has like formal academic training as a historian that I simply like I'm not privy to. I like I am not trained in in, as far as some, some of the specific points that she was making. The point that Bethany made that I really wanted to kind of unpack more and we kind of just ran out of time was she used the phrase mommy shaming. Um, I was really hoping to kind of dive into that a little more. Maybe we could do like a follow up podcast somewhere down the line along those lines, because we as a society and a culture really, I think, have shamed the idea of um, of, of stay at home motherhood. And that, that's that's horrible. Um, it's absolutely horrible. There's long been a stigma attached to stay at home fatherhood, uh, we can query, you know, query whether that's a good or a bad thing, but there has become kind of this relatively newfound stigma attached to stay at home motherhood, which I think is just deeply toxic. And I think like the point that, that she was making around the time that she was talking about that as well, Bethany, was she was talking about how, you know, children feel a 
need, whether it's biological, instinctual, or something else, to be with their parents. I mean, as a conservative, this was kind of like our argument for marriage, like, you know, like in like the traditional versus same-sex marriage debates for years was, you know, every boy and girl ideally deserves like a mother and a father and like in an even more ideal setting, at least one dedicated to like truly kind of raising the children. So these are kind of like the strands I would have liked to have touched on a little more, but um, it's okay. I, I thought it was a great discussion. I really did. Yeah, clearly I was, you know, getting a little bit of my own uh, therapy there on the, at the end about religion and <laughs> feminism. So I got a lot out well, of it. Well, there's nothing wrong with a little self-help in real time on the podcast. That's that's for sure. Um, agreed, agreed. But look, on, on behalf of Badia, um, we hope you enjoyed this particular episode of Newsweek's The Debate. As a friendly reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Art19, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. See you next time. <laughs>